Well, spring is here. Over the last uh, week, the sun finally came out in the Willamette Valley, and uh, we hit 80 degrees, and the flowers are blooming, and there's color everywhere. That's awesome. I love spring. And uh, in honor of spring, I wanted to read a little quote. Uh, This is from uh, Mark Twain. Actually, it's from his uh, character, Huckleberry Finn. I want to read a little quote, and Huck says this, it's spring fever. That is what the name of it is. And when you've got it, you want, oh, you don't quite know what it is that you do want, but it just fairly makes your heart ache. You want it so. I suppose today we might say something like, the heart wants what it wants. Uh, I was looking up stuff about spring fever, and I came across this article from 2007 edition of the Scientific American Magazine, the Science Journal. And there's an article entitled, Fact or Fiction? Spring fever is a real phenomenon. Here's just a little part of it. There's an illness that has been documented by poets for centuries. Its symptoms include a flushed face, increased heart rate, appetite loss, restlessness, and daydreaming. It's spring fever, that wonderfully amorphous disease we all recognize April or May. And then the article goes on with a bunch of boring scientific facts about how sci- yeah, the spring fever, this is it's a real thing. So spring fever, but it doesn't just lighten our mood. Listen to what English poet Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote. He said, in the spring, a young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love. Spring fever. Our Bible text today involves the story of one man overtaken by what some might categorize as a typical case of spring fever. On one level, this is a brilliant story that's handed down to us by a a great storyteller. It's got a gripping plot, there's twists, there's uh, edge-of-your-seat sex and violence and a murder mystery that threatens to topple the ruler of a great nation. It's like something out of a a novel or a movie. But then on another level, as followers of Jesus, we believe that this story, as well as the entire Bible, has power because it is God-breathed. And therefore, it is useful for teaching and for rebuking and for correcting and for training us in how to live right. In other words, This story today doesn't merely thrill or entertain, it pierces our hearts and it displays God's power to save even in the midst of some very deep sin and brokenness. And so I want to begin by telling the story and it's much more than a story of, of lust and adultery. This is a story of the gradual hardening of a human heart, a heart that was once so sensitive It was open and alive, but it grew callous and clouded and dead. If you've heard the story before, I want to encourage you to listen again with new ears and ask God what he wants to tell you today from this story. Our story begins in verse 1 of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. And it begins with a foreshadowing introduction as we begin to explore the danger of success. Verse 1. Then it happened in the spring, 
at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now, this is not the David that we know and love from Scripture. You might remember that one of the first times in Scripture that we meet David is when everyone slinks back in terror from the bully Goliath, but a teenage David runs into the thick of the battle, madly twirling a a sling over his head, flinging the stone, dropping the bully, chopping the head off the giant. That kind of became the mark of David's life, to engage life to fight oppression and evil, to stay alive with God, to live and to dare passionately and to risk everything for the glory of God. David fought and he prayed and he ran and he loved and he hated and he argued, even argued with God. But in everything, David faced life with a fully alive heart. But somehow, somewhere, Maybe in the midst of all the battles, or maybe even more likely in the midst of of all the successes, life drained the passion out of David. And now he's a, a shell of a man. David's army is out there on the front line, and they're risking their lives. They're defending the kingdom. They're sweating and bleeding and dying. And where's their leader, David, the commander-in-chief, the mighty warrior, the one who should be with the troops? Where's he at? He's at home. He's taking a leisurely stroll up on his marble deck, waking up after a late afternoon nap. And it's from that perch that David surveys all the signs of his own success. Largely through his leadership, the nation has been united The economy is flourishing, the military is advancing, and the shepherd boy is living in a palace. So watch out, David, watch out. You know, often when we arrive at the middle stages of our life, we're often the most vulnerable to destroying everything that has been built up during the first stages. You see, success can be so dangerous Look at verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now I don't think I need to give you the details of what very beautiful means. The woman was Bathsheba, and she's gorgeous, she's stunning, she's head-turning, she's alluring. Watch out, David. Success breeds danger. In verse 3 we read, David sent and inquired about the woman. Now here's where the story gets interesting. That word sent is used 11 times in this story. And it's usually David who's the one doing the sending. In verse 1, David sent General Joab in the army into battle. Then David sends a servant to find out about this bathing beauty. And then David sends messengers again in verse 4. And in in verse 6, David sends word to Joab and commands him, Send me Uriah the Hittite. 
After Uriah dies in battle, David sends for Bathsheba. Clearly, David is a man used to being in charge. He sends, people jump. He's in control, or so he thinks. You see, what we so often think is control is merely the illusion of control. The illusion of control. Now, Bathsheba is married to a man named Uriah. Uriah is a Hittite. He's a foreigner. He's not a Jew. And yet he has risen in the ranks of David's army as a mighty warrior. He's well respected. But that doesn't stop David. David has everything. And yet his heart is still restless. So a quick summary of verse 4 shows this. David sent messengers to get the woman. He came to her and he slept with her and then she went back home. That's the end of the story. A simple, uncomplicated affair. A spring fling, if you will. But once again, once again, David controls his destiny. But then, the story takes a twist. In verse 5, it's written, The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Notice who's doing the sending now. It's not David. It's Bathsheba. For all of his control, for all of his sending and masterminding and planning, there are some things that David has no control over, like the growth of new life in the womb. But not to worry, David immediately takes control of the situation, engineering and overseeing a brilliant three-phase scheme to cover up his scandal. He sends word to General Joab at the front of the lines, and he says, send Uriah the Hittite home. Send him to see me. Phase one. In verse eight, David says to Uriah, Uriah! Go down to your house and wash your feet. That's an odd phrase, isn't it? Today, we would call this an innuendo or a double entendre. Now, certainly surrounded by hot and dusty roads and a long journey, Uriah probably needs to go home and wash his feet. But feet in the Bible can also refer to male sexuality. And so with a wink and a nod, David is telling Uriah, Uriah, go home. Spend some time with the lady. Wink, wink. Relax. And then he even sends along a basket of wine and cheese and fruit. How romantic. But Uriah doesn't do it. And David is confused. The whole time he assumes that Uriah is just like him. But instead, Uriah, the foreigner, the foot soldier, the servant, he acts with far more integrity and faith than David, the God-ordained king, the man after God's own heart. Let's listen in to pick up on Uriah's thinking in verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? 
by your life and the life of your soul. I will not do this thing. A man of integrity. And it messes up David's plan. And so it's time for phase two. The next night, David throws a party. And what does he do? He invites Uriah to the party with the aim of getting him drunk. Hey, David says to Uriah for maybe the 15th time, let me fill your cup. Let me fill that cup of yours. You've hardly even started with the wine. The good wine's still coming. But that doesn't work either. Uriah, ever loyal to his fellow soldiers, refuses to go home while his comrades are struggling and sweating and dying on the battlefield. He just can't do it. And so he spends the night in the servants' quarters. Again, this stumps David. Phase two didn't work, and so it's time for phase three to come into action. That's it, David says. Uriah's got to go down. And so he begins to arrange for Uriah's murder. In verses 14 through 17, David orders General Joab to place Uriah in the front of the battle where the fighting is the fiercest, and then to retreat with his army, pulling back and abandoning Uriah there so that he'll meet his fate and be struck down and die. That's David's solution to his current problem. This time, the plan works. Although it gets a lot messier than David had originally thought. The canny General Joab realizes that if he pulls all the men back and just leaves Uriah out there, David's plot is going to be exposed. And so he coldly sends an entire contingent of soldiers with Uriah to the front, to the fiercest part of the battle, and then pulls the army back, and all of those men perish. In verses 18 through 24, Joab sends an update from the front lines back to David in Jerusalem. And the messenger comes and gives the report of the battles and then concludes with the, the one item that really matters to David. Oh, by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite died in battle. Well, David takes the loss in stride. He sends back a message to General Joab, a shallow cliche. In verse 25, he says... Uh, to tell Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. You see, David has become a man of platitudes rather than a man of true convictions. According to verses 26 and 27, David's plan has finally worked. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is in mourning. And notice that David, the man who has taught us so much in the Psalms about the power of lament, he doesn't cry about this tragedy. It doesn't bother him. And after a respectable, respectful amount of time for Bathsheba's mourning, mourning, then David acts very quickly. He has her brought into his house. The phrase in, in verse 27 can be literally translated, he sent and collected her like an item. He sent and collected her. Once again, David takes charge. He asserts control. And he adds to his empire. The danger of success. The illusion 
of control. But notice, God has yet to speak in this story. The very last verse of chapter 11, God shows up. In verse 27, the last phrase we read is, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so now we enter into chapter 12. And it's here where we will see the reality of God. The reality of God. Remember, remember David sending this and that, taking charge, staying in control, working his plan. Well, look what God does in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. It's as if God is finally saying, hey, David, it's me. I'm here. I'm in charge and you're not. And then Nathan, the prophet, the man who serves as God's mouthpiece, the man who declares God's truth, comes to David and he tells a very simple story. David, let me tell you a story. A rich man had some house guests And so he needed some lamb chops to feed them. And so rather than take one of the many lambs from his own vast flock, what does he do? He steals a sweet little lamb, a family pet, from his very poor neighbor. And the outrage of it all, the poor man had fed that little lamb like we would feed a puppy. He'd held it in his lap. The lamb grew up drinking out of the poor man's bowl. But the rich man stole it and butchered it and cooked it and ate it. And after David, or Nathan tells the story, notice David's reaction in verse 5. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. The king is ticked off. Finally, his heart engages. And he responds with a sense of moral outrage, as he should. But it's then that Nathan closes his masterful trap. And so in verse 7, Nathan speaks the words, David, you are the man. You are the man. And all David's defenses are flattened in a moment. And he stands exposed before his judge. And then Nathan continues. And David has to consider everything that God has done for him. God basically says to him, I anointed you. I delivered you. I gave to you. Everything you have is from me. But despite all of this, David has done what is evil in God's sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You killed him with the sword, David. That's what God says. Though David had engineered the plot from a distance, he might as well as have taken that sword and plunged it into Uriah's chest himself. You are the man. That callous message that David has sent up to Joab. The sword sometimes consumes one way and sometimes another. Too bad, Uriah. Is now thrown back in his face. The words pierce David's calloused heart. 
And so then we see him quietly say in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. I really like how Eugene Peterson puts it in his commentary of this passage. He says, David finally quits giving out opinions on other people's lives and realizes his position before God, a sinner, a person in trouble, a person who needs help, a human being who needs God. And then immediately, immediately comes the astonishing response from the Lord. It comes from the Lord, through Nathan, directly to David, the word of the God, of God. The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Wow. You shall not die, David. And so what are our lessons from this story? Let's make some personal applications this morning from this biblical narrative. It's a great story, but what about us? What do we do with this? This is a story about sin. Sin is the word that we use to describe our attempt to really become our own gods, to do things our way, to control our life, to be in charge, to be our own boss. It's not so much a moral term, doing bad things, as it is a relational term. Do you to understand that? Sin is avoiding God. Sin is acting like we're our own God. Sin is creating a God according to our own preferences and likings. And so I want us to see four lessons from this story that I think we can make some personal application with. And the first one is this. Sin is personal. Sin is personal. The gospel is first and foremost about Jesus and me. Now, we see that David easily gets worked into a frenzy of anger about someone else's sin. But Nathan tells him, you are the man. This is where the gospel must start. You are the man. You are the woman. The gospel is, is never first and foremost about someone else. It always has to start with me and my own sin. Now what do I do with that? Well, often I want to shift the blame and worry about someone else and their sin. But what God says to us is, no, let's change you. Let's change your marriage. Let's change your family, your neighborhood, your school, your community, your nation. And how about we start with you? Quit worrying about everybody else and work on you. You see, sin must start at that personal level. But then there's a second thing that we need to recognize about sin, and that is that sin is deceptive. It is so deceptive. I think it was about 10 years or so ago that my office computer caught a virus. Or rather, I allowed my office computer to catch a virus. 
when I clicked on an email attachment from something that I wasn't aware about, and it took over my computer. Now, this was a particularly nasty virus because, first of all, the first thing it did was deactivate the antivirus software on my computer. And what I want us to see is this, folks. That's what sin does in our life. It deactivates our ability to detect it. That's what happened to David. He slid into sin. It started with a furtive glance from his rooftop. It started with lust in his heart that led to adultery, to lies, to deception, and yes, to murder. And all that time, he never saw it. His heart hardened. The deceptiveness of sin is that it doesn't feel like sin when we're doing it. It feels godlike. Sin can feel religious. It can feel fulfilling and satisfying. It feels so right. Eugene Peterson writes, David didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Bathsheba. He felt like a lover. And what can be better than that? David didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Uriah. He felt like a king. And what can be better than that? And all the time, his heart died a little bit more each day. You see... uh, A big part of our mess, the mess that we all live in, a big part of our mess is that we can't see our mess. It's deceptive. Sin is personal. Sin is deceptive. And third, sin has consequences. There are always consequences. Notice what happened with David's sin. It impacted far more people than he ever imagined. David had no idea when he had that first furtive glance down to that rooftop. He had no idea that his plan would ultimately end with murder. Not just of one man, but of an entire contingent of faithful, honorable soldiers who were serving him. You see... Sin never stays in the neat boxes that we try to create. You know those boxes that look so pretty so that we can kind of hide it away? Sin doesn't ever stay there. My sin will have ramifications that I cannot predict or control. My sin is wider, it is deeper than I can ever imagine. Sin always has consequences. It is personal. It is deceptive. It has consequences. And then finally, sin is ugly. That's just bottom line. Sin is ugly. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that you had a good conversation about sin? Let's chat about sin. It's not a very common phrase, is it? You know, for most of us, it's probably been a long time. You know, have you noticed we prefer other words as we package our sin? 
dysfunction, addiction, codependency, alienation, temporary moral failure. I like that one. Private mistakes. An unfortunate choice. The list could go on. Why must we talk about sin? We must talk about sin because honestly facing our sin is the prerequisite to understanding the second half of the gospel. The first half is, I'm a mess. And the second half is, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. Now, although this story focuses on David's sin, it is ultimately a story that ends and focuses on God's invitation to grace. Even in the midst of an ugly story about a bunch of ugly sins, we find the truth of the gospel here. The gospel is God's invitation to come to him through Christ Jesus in the midst of our fallen, ugly, stupid, twisted, sinful life. And so in this passage, we find a double invitation. The first invitation to all of us is this. There is an invitation to come clean. To come clean. Everything David did is wildly outdone by God's grace. Now, no one is minimizing David's sin. It is huge. It is ugly. It had consequences. But looming behind it, larger, infinitely larger than the sin is God's grace. After the experience ended, this whole experience with Bathsheba and Uriah and David and Nathan, after it's all over and said, with, said and done, David sat down, as he often did, to write a poem or a song about his experience. You can read it in your Bible. I want to encourage you that sometime this afternoon you sit down for just a few minutes and read together, read for yourself Psalm 51. The 51st Psalm are David's thoughts immediately following this event. And in that 51st Psalm, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to me that for all of his sinning, David only uses four words to describe sin in that song, but he uses 19 unique and different words to describe God's forgiveness and restoration. How's that for balance? You see, folks, sin is basically the same stale, dull, junky, messy, stupid routine that we've perpetuated for years. But when it comes to God's grace, God's grace is fresh, and it's original, and it's surprising, and it's overwhelming every single time it happens. God's grace never gets old. 
So the first invitation is to come clean. Come clean and experience God's grace. But then there's a second invitation. In the passage, there's an an invitation for us to come alive. To come alive. To avoid the spring fever that David experienced. How do we do that? We saw what happened in David's spirit with his sin. It killed his passion for God and for life. It led him to do things that he never thought he would do. You see, sin leads to death. Physical death. But even more importantly, spiritual death. But coming to Jesus experiencing the grace of God, that leads to spiritual life. Paul Paul put it this way in in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. You were dead. But God in his rich mercy made you alive in Christ Jesus. Do you want to be alive? You know, these days, people do all kinds of things to experience being alive. They look for life in entertainment, in doing crazy stunts. They look for life in other people, in relationships. They look for for life in, in work, in in business and success. They look for for life in achievements. But if you want real, true life, if you want to feel alive, you've got to experience and respond to God's invitation. Come clean, come alive. That's the invitation in this messy story. Come clean, come alive. There is someone who has the power to cleanse us and the power to raise us. And it is Jesus. And Jesus alone.